Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. Well, good morning, Dr. Romer. It sounds like you're out and about. Um, do you want to tell us where you are and what you're seeing around you? Absolutely. For me, it's actually later afternoon, beginning you know, of December in Berlin means comes four o'clock, which is only half an hour away. It's going to get dark. But even now, it's already late afternoon and it's cold and it happens to be almost snowing a little bit. So it's, it's on, certainly on the colder side, but I'm at the Memorial for the Murder Jews, on the big memorial that has attracted a great deal of attention. Parts of it are currently actually undergoing some repairs, not so much the actual structures themselves, but the lighting underneath it. I'm at a highly historic place. Those of you who have never been in Berlin to see the memorial, it's just placed at a very, very prominent spot. I'm looking at the backside, so to speak, of the American embassy. The front side faces the famous Brandenburg Gate, and then I'm looking adjacent to it at one of the architectural designs by Frank Gehry. And then just further down to my right side, there's the now famous Hotel Adlon that kind of remained intact all the way to the end of the war and the Holocaust and became the bizarre kind of lingering space of the last remnants of sorts that were kind of hanging out there to the very last moment until the allies arrived. I'm also mentioning here simply Frank Gehry because the memorial itself to the murdered Jews was designed by Peter Eisenman. There's Frank Gehry and then as you all know another very famous structure in Berlin was actually designed and built by Daniel Liebeskind. In other words we have three very famous American Jewish architects in different ways engaged in different parts of rebuilding of Berlin, which is kind of quite significant in its own ways, I think. But the memorial to the murdered Jews has a certain reputation. It's mostly always commented on that it's vast, it's big, it's highly visible, it's noticeable, it's prominence. There's much to be said about its name, Memorial to the Murdered Jews. Um, in other words, you know, in the debates that were leading up to the creation in the 1990s, it was very important to make this uh, a memorial specifically for the Jewish victims and not a memorial to the victims of the Third Reich or to various victims of that suffered in, in the concentration camps, but really specifically to make this about the Jewish victims and hence the name. Can you give us an idea of the scale? Is this the size of one, one building plot or is it a whole block? It's pretty much a, a, a street block of sorts. So it it's really vast. You know, and that's one of the things that has often been said that um, however one may want to talk about the extent to which Germany has confronted the legacies of the Third Reich, there's probably very few countries, if any, that could come to mind that have that publicly and that visibly um, acknowledged their the crimes that they've committed in their capital in such a kind of prominent way as it is the case here. Also, interestingly enough, the memorial itself is surrounded on the other side, you know, away from the American embassy and all that, by just residential buildings. So in other words, it kind of is part of a very normal landscape. 
and then on the other side of that side faces the Tiergarten, uh, one of the bigger parks. It's kind of the equivalent of Central Park. So it's a very, very prominent place. Something that has often been said, it's this abstraction. Visitors who are walking through, walking through these kind of larger rectangular structures, and they are varying size, they are higher, uh, lower, and as one walks into them, one is sometimes submerged, sometimes one has a sense of the structures surrounding you, sometimes you're just entirely enclosed, but there's a kind of sense of loss of orientation, of there not being very clear markers in one way or another, but therefore also often has been said really nothing concretely that has been elevated here as something that one needs to remember or learn from all of that. That's what many of the critics have always said. Now, in fairness to the memorial, there's a substantial museum underneath it that tells a very detailed history of the Holocaust. Are you walking currently into the memorial? Yes, I am. What I hear on this end is the city, the streets, people's voices are are more muffled. So it sounds almost like you're going into a cave or you're going underground. I've just quite literally, I've been in one of the deeper parts of it. Down here now, there's a whole group of school children chasing through here with their teachers. So you hear them talking and trying to make their ways through it. But yes, down here, you would hear very little of the city noises, right? It's almost like you've gone into a cavern is what it sounds like. And now I'm kind of re-emerging, so to speak, as... You know, the structures are getting a little lower and um, also the grounds are uneven. So I'm coming up again and I'm closer to the streets again. One of the really disorientating parts of that design is that from the street, you don't see that it's deep until you, you start walking into it and you really do become lost in the middle of it. Right. And, you know, while it is kind of on a grid, so to speak, it's nonetheless, because of the different elevations, um, hard to map out exactly what you're getting yourselves into. And then the other part that is really noticeable, the grounds aren't even. So as you're walking, you kind of have to resituate sometimes yourself because you're kind of leaning toward the right, leaning toward the left, depending on how the grounds are also shifting around. And so that's another kind of way whereby what you may experience that it's disorienting is also, you know, quite physically making you uncertain about your your position insofar as the grounds are themselves kind of going up and down and shifting sometimes a bit to the left and sometimes a little bit to the right. And just to put some numbers to those concrete slabs, there's 2,711 of them, and they're about the size, a little bit larger than a a coffin is what I would reference them to. Is there another reference that you would give to the shape of them? No, that's pretty much, I mean, they're higher. I mean, the some of them, like on the perimeters, they kind of have the height of a coffin. And then once you get further into there, you know, right now where I'm standing, they're about six feet high. And then once you go a little bit deeper into it, there are seven, eight, nine, here about almost 10 feet high, maybe. So they take on different shapes and forms here. But very clearly... The idea is here that our engagement with the Holocaust is something that doesn't provide us with ready-made 
learning outcomes is something that is disorienting, maybe uncomfortable even, and something where our own respective position constantly shifts itself vis-a-vis our surroundings. You had started to say a few minutes ago about what is underneath. Do you want to say a little bit more about this information center? Yeah, it's just a very substantial and very well put together exhibit. And a lot of travelers that come to Berlin, they get out of their buses on the edges and then they make it through the memorial and then they leave. Not everyone always will have taken the time to go into the downstairs part of that documentation center, as it's called. But If you see it in combination, then the abstraction that the memorial has on the one side is juxtaposed by um, very detailed museum exhibits that are telling the story of the Third Reich and also of the Holocaust. So I think that's important to remember. It's also important to remember that this is obviously only one of many sites. It's a memorial. It's not a museum. It's not a kind of place where everything is taught or remembered. But Berlin is quite literally layered with various local smaller memorials and then obviously also with those kind of smaller stumbling blocks in many, many places. So I think one has to see this memorial more in kind of in concert with the other forms of remembrance in the city to give it more justice and really to appreciate it for what it is trying to do, which is actually quite sophisticated to make us think about ourselves vis-a-vis the Holocaust. Triggered by our sense of loss of orientation and us being kind of at times really submerged in these concrete structures. You're mentioning these other memorials around, and it really seems like Berlin had a boom of memorial building after the wall fell. But this one wasn't inaugurated or dedicated until 2005, which is very recent. What's the reason for this delay in constructing the memorial? Well, a lot of these initiatives obviously had to do with fall of the wall and then alongside with it, the unification of Germany. And with that, a really bigger process of thinking about what kind of Germany one would want to create and what kind of memorial culture one would want to have at the capital. So there are lots of really significant markers. I mean, I'm standing now on the outside, so to speak, of the memorial, and I'm looking at the National Parliament, the Reichstagsgebäude, which in and of itself is a very famous marker of the past. This was the outcome of a slightly more delayed process. There was a vigorous public debate about the various designs. You know, there was a public contest, various architects sent in their proposals, and it just took a little bit longer. And then the actual creation of this also was a bit more time-consuming. But it was part and parcel of a, of a really prolonged public debate in the 1990s about the nature, the design, and the purpose of this memorial in the capital of Germany. You're bringing up a really interesting point about this question of what kind of Germany is wanted or you know, the ways in which uh, Germans today should remember the past and the connection between art, design, and some kind of national identity. But it seems like the years of debate is, is helpful for working that out. Well, very much so. And I think ultimately really it's also the simple recognition that um, I think as Germans debated or each memorial in, in its own ways, it kind of created sometimes a kind of focus on, on one memorial that was meant to accomplish 
probably more than any individual structure could ever do. And I think as, you know, now the various memorials came together, also, you know, very much with the famous um, Jewish Museum designed by Daniel Liebeskind, then I think one sees it more as a kind of concert of voices of remembrance with their own dissonances and differences. Um, and then remember, this is Berlin, so there's the other history as well, the division, the separation of uh, GDR. I mean, this is the, the, one of the reasons why this was also placed here is this was a very prominent space. This was alongside the division of East and West. This is actually not very far from where Hitler's bunker was. All these spaces, in many ways, had already their own almost overdetermined historical meaning of sorts into which then these new memorials were inscribed. But I find this one really interesting and challenging in many ways, precisely because whatever we take from it is probably that which, you know, we have to figure out by ourselves and not something that comes so easily off it in, in terms of it being something that is kind of inscribed for us to remember you know, in terms of a particular lesson or anything like that, that we should kind of embrace. So it, you have to do the work here, in other words. Yeah, it's not necessarily all explained on a plaque out front. No. How is this memorial received by people who live in Berlin, people who are walking around? I know another big issue is kids or adults, young people jumping or playing on this memorial because it is, if you didn't know the history behind it, it would look kind of like a playful landscape. Well, you know, I think, again, it's something that, you know, has been uh, commented on quite, you know, a bit, in particular also in the international press, um, you know, and it kind of presupposes that there's this all inappropriate behavior, in particular the taking of selfies and the likes that has occurred uh, in the site, and that's true. But I think that's also part of a public... Uh, remembrance culture that it can never be quite perfect. You, you do not want to have a prescribed science here in terms of what is allowed and what's not allowed. But what is a, what is how people interact with the site is something that they themselves figure out for themselves in in concert with other visitors to the site. And I think it comes with people who are very mindful and and are very respectful. And it comes with people who are a little less respectful, a little less mindful. But I I think that's also probably not surprising if you put something like that into the middle of the city and not like somewhere on the perimeter of a big mall or something like that. And it's not fenced off. It's not as though you need to have a guide take you through it. You can just walk right off the street into it. Yeah, and it's like toward the the edges, it gets gets actually really accessible because the the structures are a little lower and therefore it kind of opens itself up to, to some of the sites um, quite significantly and almost is inviting of sorts at first maybe if you're walking around here during the summer and you want to like rest or something like that you might at first mistake it just for a place where you can just easily sit and rest and kind of behold a little bit the, the park that is in front of you on the other side of the street kind of leaving now the side a little bit behind I'm facing um, now the the street, so I have to wait for the traffic lines to turn. 
one of the interesting things about Berlin's traffic lights is they are differently shaped depending on whether you are in the former east or in the west. So by the ways by which the green and the red light appears, you always know exactly whether this was east or west. And that little cutout man who represented the traffic lights in the east has actually become now a bit of a tourist gadget. But I've crossed now over because we wanted still to see something else. We've talked a great deal about the title of the memorial. It's the memorial to the murdered Jews and the kind of surrounding conversations or controversies as to whether the memorial should have been more inclusive of other victims. And amongst those that were debated as to whether they should be included or not were, for example, homosexuals, but also Roma and Sinti. And it's just opposite from the memorial on the side of the Tiergarten. That's where we find another memorial, one that is dedicated to the remembrance of the persecution of homosexuals. So I'm just kind of finding my way across there. It's probably one that receives far less attention. It's also significantly smaller, almost hard to make out really at first because it's kind of in the middle of the park structures and other memorials. It's in the park, but it has a feeling of being in a more intimate space because there's trees and bushes around, whereas the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe is very accessible. You can see it off the street. It's If you're walking by it, it's hard to miss it. Whereas this memorial that you're taking us to now, it's in a quieter space. Very much. But as you're walking to it, you're also passing by what was part of this original design of this park, a gigantic memorial to one of Germany's famous poets, Goethe. So I'm just kind of leaving him on my side and I'm just about to make it to the memorial. I can see it already. It's a bigger rectangular structure, probably eight, nine feet high, uh, maybe another 12 to 14 feet long. Also like an abstract of sorts, so from the outside you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell right away what it is. It's just a big structure. It doesn't you know, there's nothing immediately that tells you what it is. In contrast to the concrete slabs of the Memorial to the Murdered Jews, those slabs, they're not at right angles necessarily, but the slabs themselves are flat on top. Whereas the one that you're taking us to, it's not a perfect rectangle. It's kind of off kilter in every way. A little bit, yes. But it's also very, has a very plain surface, nothing, there are no inscriptions, no signs, no nothing. And then it has a little cutout, which if you look into it, you'll see that there's um, constantly a shorter movie that is being displayed, which tells you something about the persecution of homosexuals, which in many ways, you know, predated of sorts actually the Third Reich. It was built around what's called Paragraph 175 that came into existence in this form in 1871 with the creation of the German nation-state and then was significantly widened over the years. During the Weimar Republic, it almost became revoked, but then the rise of the 
NSDAP, Hitler's party, ultimately prevented uh, its revocation. And then under the Nazis, it was significantly then widened in its application. And obviously the burden of proof was entirely shifted toward the accusers. And therefore, it became very, very easy to harass, intimidate, but ultimately also to arrest homosexuals and to sentence them to concentration camps where a good many of them ended up often to this day is remembered by the pink triangle that they would have been required to wear on their uniforms. What is the substance of this law, paragraph 175? Is it that people are forbidden to engage in homosexual activity, particularly men, or is it even in the application of the law? Well, the law itself was always more specifically designed for the persecution of homosexuals rather than lesbians. And so in that respect, it was inclusive of sorts, but the application was very clearly directed at men far more than at women. It was a paragraph that associated actually homosexuality with kind of lewd behavior with forms of sodomy. It was not just simply indicting it, but it was kind of characters arising it in a particularly vile manner. And those kinds of laws were not specific to Germany. It wasn't as though at the time Germany had laws that were different in some way from other countries. And even to today, Texas has anti-sodomy laws on the records. And in many ways, I mean, this is the, the other side of this, obviously. It took Germany a long, long time to revoke these. And that's the, the history of the persecution of homosexuals in the Third Reich has always struggled to be acknowledged. And part of it had to do with the fact that this paragraph continued to be in existence way into the post-war period. The communist East Germany had actually made it far more lenient and then revoked it more completely in the 80s. West Germany, or then the reunited Germany, really ultimately fully revoked it only in 1994, which meant for many of the individuals who survived the Third Reich, they entered actually a post-war period where they still found themselves at the end of a hostile legal system and not in a world where they were particularly welcomed and acknowledged as victims and recognized. And so therefore, also much of the kind of collecting of testimonies and, and things that otherwise we often associate with the immediate aftermath of the Third Reich and the Holocaust occurred here far, far later. So much so that many of them often found themselves also uh, returning to families where they couldn't necessarily acknowledge for the reason for which they had been persecuted. So it's a particularly heartbreaking and in many ways also a very saddening story, in particular considering its kind of prolonged aftermath. How was the placement of the memorial received, given that it's so close to this memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe? Are the memorials in tension, or was it a welcomed addition to this area where there's a lot of memorials? Widely, it was received um, quite well as a kind of acknowledgement that obviously on scale, the persecution of the Jews dwarfs any other kind of group, but that at the same time, the proximity here also says something about the significance of this being commemorated and recognized also here in this very prominent space and not just simply elsewhere, just in museums and so on and so forth. So I think this is, in my mind, it's an important addition to the memorials that exist here so that it becomes also more accessible. Now, in practice, I doubt, though, that many venture across because, I mean, right now during the wintertime, you know, the leaves are down, so I can see still the memorial to the murder juice, and from there you could see this memorial as well. But come summer and everything is lush and green, then that becomes a very different 
challenge. And that kind of mirrors the the lack of visibility during those times of intense persecution and then afterwards with many of the testimonies not being collected. So even in the memorialization, it's kind of following this pattern. And the other layer of that is that the memorial, as you mentioned before, was originally designed to recognize particularly gay men and lesbians were left out of that description. And the video that's playing in the memorial was originally a video of two men that were kissing. And after some people pointing out, you're you're sort of leaving out another persecuted group here, which would be lesbians. They changed it. So the video that plays shows two women that are kissing. When I visited the memorial, I was really struck by the contrast of the gray sides of that memorial and the video, which can be showing quite a bit of joy that it's this intimate moment between two people that isn't sad. It's not as though it's what you would typically think of as a traumatizing memorial video. That is true, but there's also something kind of particular about it insofar as you only see it through this cutout, right? It's not visible. It's not on the surface that any kind of person passing it by gets a sense of this being also beautiful and joyous, but only if you walk over there and kind of countering it as a memorial to the persecution of gay and lesbians, then you recognize that there's actually more to it than just simply the, the story of persecution. So it's kind of interesting interesting how it's visible and not visible at the same time. It sounds like you're walking. Can you tell us where you're going? Yes, I'm walking now away from the memorial. Also kind of I'm leaving us the memorial to the murder Jews behind. I'm walking, so to speak, in the direction of the Brandenburg Gate. Um, to my right side is still, it's this massive American embassy that sits right on the edge there. And I'm trying to make my way now over to the third memorial. And that's the memorial that was created in order to commemorate the persecution of the Roma and Sinti, which is size-wise also quite significant. It's also part of the story that even with, when it comes to the persecution of homosexuals and lesbians, we're not entirely sure always about the exact numbers. We're also not entirely sure about the exact numbers of um, how many Roma and Sinti were persecuted. They kind of go somewhere between 250,000 to half a million. It's not always entirely clear how good our data is in terms of the the sheer numbers and it also you know involved far more varied practices of persecution. I mean some Roman Sinti were obviously deported to the camps just as much as homosexuals were also deported to the camps. So insofar as they were deported, then they became recognized and registered and we know about them. But then there are also many others who were persecuted in other ways, which didn't necessarily always leave their bureaucratic uh, record behind. So that makes it a little bit more challenging at times. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about these people groups, the Roma and the Sinti? Where are they from? What is their significance within Germany or uh, the lands that the Nazis controlled? The thing about the Roma and Sinti, um, which was significant from the perspective of, of the Nazis, was that they lived across Europe. And they were not a group that was limited to one particular geography. And therefore, the persecution of Roma and Sinti occurred also over a vast geography. And therefore, it is sometimes also seen really as maybe not having been quite implemented with the same kind of ruthlessness as the persecution of the Jews was concerned, but nonetheless similar in so far as it involved the persecution of a people 
um, within a wider geography. And also the persecution that required the deportation of, of those. So in that respect, you know, if we make these kind of comparisons sometimes between Holocaust and other genocides, then one of the things that we often single out as being so unique about the Holocaust was that there was a, a kind of plan to really murder the Jews of Europe, kind of to implement a continental form of genocide, whereas the genocides thus far that had occurred were geographically always far more limited. But if that is the distinguishing feature, or one of them anyway, that we often use to describe the Holocaust, then it's interesting that that element on some level also applies actually to the persecution of the Roma and Sinti. And the Roma and Sinti, their culture is to be more uh, migratory, which makes it challenging to consider where should the memorial be placed. And also the traditional forms of testimony collection, you know, written records, all of that has a different legacy within the communities of the Roma and Sinti because of because their culture is just um, it's not anchored in the same way as the Jewish community. No, very true. Um, and also, you know, the Jewish community, but the, we already said community was organized in communal structures prior to the Holocaust, right? Um, and those institutions and organizations then also were used as a way to commemorate, to collect, to record, and so on, and also to advocate in a more centralized manner within the various nation states. Now, for the Roma and Sinti, that never quite existed. Why was the memorial, what was the decision behind placing it in Berlin? Well, I think it just came straight out of the kind of unresolved controversies that still were lingering around the kind of more exclusive recognition of the of the victims as being Jewish with a memorial to the murdered Jews. And then therefore the second, not insignificant memorial size-wise was created. And if I talked a great deal about the significance of the placement of the memorial to the murdered Jews, this also is placed at a very prominent space Space, and that is, it sits right in front of the German National Parliament, so to speak, to the side. And um, therefore has also a greater prominence. What it does really well, you know, considering again the criticism that gets often leveraged at the memorial to the murdered Jews, it immediately says on the outside what it is. It uh, says it, it's a memorial to the Sinti and Roma of Europe, murdered under National Socialism. And then on the outside, it tells the, the chronology, really, of the persecution of the Sinti and Roma, um, you know, from across, like, uh, those kind of glass walls where you can kind of read this scripture, so to speak, what it says. But then at the same time, you can kind of look through them and see also a little bit uh, what's just beyond it. But here you see very clearly, um, also when you think about uh, the whole kind of prevalence of all that, um, 1939, with the start of World War II, the Reich Security Main Office, that very office that um, oversaw the implementation later also of the, of the Holocaust, um, had also a leading role in organizing the genocide plans interpretation of all those registered as gypsies, it says here. In preparation, the deportation, the Reich Security Main Office decrees that all those affected quote, be instructed not to leave their current place of residence until further notice. This is in 1939. 
1939, when they are ordered that they could not be allowed to move any longer. And then the second one that is cited here is, is even more significant it's on the orders of Himmler, the deportation of entire families from Germany to occupied Poland begins in 1940. So even before you know, there is a kind of conception of the Holocaust, the Nazis start essentially to dump uh, the Roma and Sintis onto the occupied uh, Polish territory and to remove them, so to speak, uh, from the German Reich. And this begins in 1940, and then the kind of killing of sorts begins actually in a more systematic manner already with the killing um, squads in the Eastern Europe. So here the systematic mass shooting of Roma and Sinti starts really right at the beginning also where the systematic shooting of Jews begins, meaning with the mobile killing units. Einsatzgruppen of the security policy and the security service of the SS who are now charged to resolve the gypsy question. Some 5,000 Roma and Sinti also deported now to the ghettos of Lodz and to other places. So we see how very quickly, in other words, this violence and this kind of planning accelerates and results in a very similar kind of chronology, the chronology that otherwise is familiar to us when we're talking about the Holocaust and the persecution of the Jews, but paralleling that is really the persecution of the Roma in Sinti. Now I'm going to go into the memorial which is quite remarkable because it has these bigger kind of stones, slabs that are layered into the ground and there have the names of the various camps inscribed onto them. Colmorphosia, Riga is another one. And then the inside of it is kind of a rounded pond of water. In other words, the memorial itself has no specific shape or form but it reflects really, because it's water, the surrounding buildings and trees, and also in many ways the sky, depending on, on the shape and form um, and the light it has. So it kind of captures more and, and reflects rather than to present something. So it also has its own abstract way of making us think about remembrance. I'm just thinking about these all these memorials being placed next to each other and just the scale and intense number of people who were swept up in the violence of the Third Reich. And having multiple memorials in that same space, you physically can feel that there's many different perspectives and voices that need to be remembered. Absolutely. I mean, and this is just really only the beginning. If one were to push now a little bit further into into the park, we would very quickly come across this more heroic memorials to the fallen Soviet soldiers. I mean, this is the other famous scenes that we that we're associating with these spaces, right? The the um, the conquest or the you know of the of the Soviet army breaking into Berlin and ultimately, really, I mean, the famous part is the kind of red flag on top of the German national parliament. In many ways, this is such a historical space where there are so many different histories and memories are relevant and are kind of acknowledged here that there is really not just the one single perspective. All around these memorials, city life goes on. People need ambulances and business is happening. Laws are being made. In the context of all of, of what has happened in the past, we move forward into the present. Absolutely. That's maybe the paradox of sorts that 
these memorials are all placed into the proximity of the Brandenburg Gate, which however by its own recognition is the most significant national monument that Berlin has, right? Berlin is instantaneously recognized by that monument. You see it and you know you're in Berlin. So it, therefore though is also the site of festivals, outdoor concerts. In the past when the German national team still would do well in World Cups, Germans would come here and celebrate. And so there's also, in other words, this space is occupied and utilized to celebrate also other parts of, of this new Germany that um, was trying to create itself out of this unification of, this, of the East and the West in this Berlin, by not just creating a memorial structure, but obviously also trying to find its own kind of future as it also integrated further and further into the European Union. It's really important to note that this memorial to the Roman and Sinti victims was dedicated in 2012. World War II ended in 1945. The wall fell in 1989, but the discussion is still happening. This story is still not done. I mean, it continues. You know, there are other memorial spaces on the other side of the park. Um, there's a bigger installation that remembers and recalls the history of the euthanasia program just adjacent to the university library. There's the already mentioned memorial to the fallen Soviet soldiers um, not far from here. Then there's obviously this kind of constant stream of these stumbling blocks, uh, as they are known, that you know you find throughout the city. So I think it's a city that is recognizing its past, its painful past, but does this, I think, in a in a kind of continuous way and therefore it creates like these dissonances or, or separate voices of sorts instead of moving everything you know into one big national memorial where everything is at, at you know at home because i think that's almost impossible considering the the scale of of the devastation and destruction that the third reich caused as well as the kind of internal diversity of experiences that it uh, created the force for so many noticing the dates of when these things were dedicated is important for other post-genocide countries like the United States, that not too many years have passed from the incident to make it significant for reflection for today. And in many ways, it's also ongoing and never quite ends. That's the other part. It's not that by building a memorial, then the, the remembrance has kind of reached its, its you know, culmination and, and is resolved. But I think this issue of what Germany is and wants to be and how to remember and how to make sense out of the Third Reich and the Holocaust remains something. And it, we will always look at it differently again from from respectively our own present. I mean, we are also very clearly shaping that past from our current perspective in different ways. I mean, it was easier, I guess, for Berlin to kind of create a memorial culture once Berlin became unified for as long as Berlin existed in two halves it presented also a bit more of a challenge of sorts to even think about creating such a memorial culture 
Well, thanks so much for the walking tour, Dr. Romer. Thank you again, Katie, for walking with me here, following in my steps and talking and listening. I hope that walking around here gives you and everyone else a bit more of a sense again to think about how a remembrance is really something that is about the past, but is very much about our present and our future. And really, we ourselves are reflected in our memorials and in our practices that surround them as much as the past is embodied in them. This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.